0: Today, So we are in this Advent season, which is feeling a little different, but we do some of the things the same way every week. We really believe that God spoke in His Word for us, and we take this very seriously. So what we do is we honor God by reading it each week before the sermon, and we stand to honor it. But we have a special guest for a scripture reader, so I want to welcome up our scripture reader. And I want to invite you all to open up your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 53, please. Isaiah 53, verse 3. And one of my favorite people in the world gets to read this for us. You ready? Yes. Isaiah 53, verse 3. If you picked up a little blue Bible, that would be page 536 for you. 356, sorry. He was despised and rejected by man, men amen, of sorrow and equated with grief. And as one of whom men hide their faces, he was despised and he esteemed him not. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Owen. Thank you so much, sweetie. All right, we get to unpack that passage. Just a reminder: if you're new, uh, it's the Advent season. That's not new. That's not a. That's a. Where everyone's aware of that, but here at Redemption, technically, usually, what we do is we open up a book of the Bible, and then we preach through it. From start to finish, it takes us anywhere from a couple weeks to a couple months. Romans took us a year and a half, almost two years. But uh, in this Advent season, we're taking a little different spin because we just came out of a big chunk of Old Testament text where we're going through all these big uh, narrative stories of the king Saul, David, Solomon. And we wanted to look at Jesus through a different lens. So this series is called We Have a King. And all we're doing each week is opening up the Old Testament, looking at one verse a prophecy about the King Jesus, and we're gonna read it and unpack it and hopefully apply it to our lives, whether it's Advent season or just our lives in general. That's what we're doing each week as we're looking at Jesus through these prophecies. We have a king, and here's the title for this week just to give you note-takers. We're calling this Scars Before Blood. Simply, we have a king with some scars. And I think if you're a Christian, if you're... Familiar with the faith or the Bible or how the story ends on a cross, you immediately might jump to the scars of his hands on the cross, and that's not exactly what we're looking at. We're actually looking at his scars from being a man who was despised and rejected socially, emotionally, in his family, and throughout. He was a man full of sorrow, acquainted with grief, because he was constantly facing rejection. So that's what we're doing today is we're looking at our king through this lens of Rejection. We're going to look at three truths today for the life of a Christian in terms of rejection. So this is a heavier topic. I read a theologian say the other day, uh, Advent is not a season of darkness; it's a season of light in the darkness. And our first two Advents have been mostly joyful. We got God creating, hands in the dirt, and then last week we have a virgin and bo- a barn. Jesus is born. Great stories. This week we're going to sort speed up in Jesus' life and look at the darker elements of what it meant that Isaiah 53 was going to be the theme of Jesus' life. So I want to stop, pause. We've had a lot going on. But I want to just encourage us to prepare our hearts for this moment. So let's bow our heads, close our eyes. Father, we want to be faithful as Christians, as a church. We want to celebrate in big in loud ways, and we want to lament in very real, tangible, honest ways. In this topic here, this reality here of Jesus being a man of sorrows is a reality that hits home for all of us. So help us just to have our lives intersect with your word. Let your word encourage us, build us up, challenge us, and leave us better off because we came here to gather To submit ourselves to your word and your church community, God. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. So here's the first truth of your note taker is simply Jesus was rejected. Jesus was rejected. Now, if you know how his life ended, it ended on a cross, that's obvious. But I want, like I said, I want to see the totality of his life was a life of constant rejection. And we're going to do it through this passage. Just a little background, Isaiah. Isaiah is probably the most famous Old Testament passage for modern uh, Jews in Jesus' day. Meaning if you're a Jewish man or woman walking around in the days of Jesus and there's a soundtrack in your mind from your religious upbringing, more than likely Isaiah is playing that soundtrack. It's like me being a 40-year-old. 90s music is my soundtrack, whether it's punk rock or gangster rap it's like that's the soundtrack as I walk around and I have these moments they take me back to a moment of the soundtrack of my 90s for a Jewish person it is Isaiah almost primarily so much so it's uh quoted 21 times in the gospels 25 times Paul brings up an Isaiah passage in his letters six times Peter brings it up in his letter five times Isaiah's reference in Acts four times in the book of Revelation and Hebrews addresses it as well meaning it's always there for a Jewish person. When they're thinking about Yahweh and Israel and God's plan for the world, Isaiah is the soundtrack playing that. In particular, where we're at, what's fun is we get to teach this next spring, as we're going to teach through a big chunk of Isaiah, but Isaiah chapter 40 through Isaiah chapter 55 is one poem in the Hebrew. It's this long poem about this mysterious figure called the Suffering Servant. And then you zero on Isaiah 53, it gets really uh, highlighted and spotlighted on the suffering servant's suffering. And then highlight even more, zoom in and more, what we get to here, what Alana just read, verse three says this, it's on the screen if you want. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Just let the text speak for Jesus. Here's how Jesus is described. He was despised. That's a word we kind of know, but just definitions often help. It's to regard as negligible, worthless, or distasteful. So the king of the universe, the creator of all things, the sustainer of your breath and my breath in this very moment, was treated as negligible, unnecessary. Even distasteful. He's also rejected, it says. He was despised and rejected. There was a refusal to be acquainted with him. He was despised and he was rejected. Here's the question we got to ask prophecy. Even in Deuteronomy, it says here, prophets are going to pop up all the time. You got to make sure their stuff comes true. Did this prophetic word from Isaiah in this poem he's writing come true? The answer is absolutely 100% yes. However, last week, Anthony taught about a virgin being born. There's other prophecies about how he's going to be buried. He's going to be buried in a rich grave. There's all these prophecies where you can point to a specific moment and say, this is where this happened. With this one talking about what his life felt like, there's not one specific passage we can go to and say, there, Isaiah nailed it. What you have to do is open up the New Testament and take notes, and you soon realize like this was abundantly true of his life. This was the soundtrack playing not only in his mind, but in reality as he faced a world that kept rejecting and despising and not esteeming him. So what I'm gonna do is just look at some passages. We're gonna walk through a bunch. You can reference the passages for later. But here's the first instance of rejection in his life is he was rejected within his own family. John 7 5 says this for not even his brothers believed in him. Some of you have brothers, I have a brother. I know they can be turds. But the God of the universe, the house he grew up in, he knows who he is. And what's said about those closest to him is there ah, goes Jesus. They look at him cross eyed. They're like, ah. Like, I was, just had dinner last night with some friends from our old church, and one of them was a guy I mentored for a while and tried to, like, kind of train into ministry, and he came out of GC with a Bible degree and ready to take over and preach and all that. And he was very excited about the collision of this, the truth of the gospel and the Bible and an unbelieving secular world. And he, like, all his focus was on that. And I said, that's kind of the easy part. Like he preached the truth, and if the Spirit opens eyes, he's the hard part is when you faithfully are walking in a calling, you feel like God has placed you, and those closest to you despise you, reject you, mock you, belittle you. For me personally, it's when I feel called by God to do church, to do pastoral ministry in a certain way, and those Christians in my life that I look up to and appreciate look at me and think, ah, but I think, ah, you should do it this way. Jesus faced that all the time in his own home. So he leaves his home. What's it like being in his hometown? Here's the next thing. He was rejected even by his hometown. Coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. And they were astonished. The teaching was great. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom, these mighty works? But they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. He was rejected even in his hometown. Like he had no place where he was received here on earth. West Mesa Redemption has an immigration sort of lawyer ministry there where they help people with uh, immigration status. And they said immigrants, whatever talking about America, Europe, wherever, are the biggest opportunity for the gospel to be presented because they live in this no man's land of they don't have a home. They've left their home. This is not yet their home. That reality of like, where do I fit? Where do I belong? And Jesus, his earthly ministry was one of that. Who will take me? His hometown says, ah, no. Where else? Even as he enters public ministry, there's a book, called Isaiah, which we're reading. And it was a scroll at one point. like It was like this. And they had it in synagogues. And Jesus walks into a synagogue to begin his ministry, and he takes Isaiah, and he rolls it out, and he reads it, and he preaches, and he says, this has been fulfilled today, the prophecies about him. As he's unpacking 700 years ago what was said about what was happening in this moment, and here's the response. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. I mean, I I have, this church family is so sweet and amazing. It's like almost nothing but encouragement. To think, like, I get up here, pour my heart and soul, I know I'm right, I'm full of grace, I'm full of truth, and I preach, and they're filled with wrath. That's what Jesus, he was a man who faced rejection over and over and over again. Even when he did less controversial things, okay, I won't preach. Let's go help people. Here's what's said about him after helping somebody. After looking around at them, he said to them, stretch out your hand. There's a man with a withered hand. Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. This man's been waiting for how long to have this happen. And here's the response. They were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. What are you doing over there, Jesus? Okay, I'll I'll go help in another way. He goes to another town. There's a demon-possessed man who is just wreaking havoc on this town. Picture being living in Moon Valley, and there's one neighbor who is just destroying the vibe of Moon Valley. Just vandalizing, drunk, cussing, destroying stuff. There's one person who's destroying. This guy is a demon-possessed man, and he's doing that to an entire community. And those who had seen it, this, he cleans them of the demon, sends them out. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people... There's not an exception, according to Luke, the author. All the people surrounding this country asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, so he got into the boat and returned. Now this one, at least there's some compassion on my side of like, I get the fear of just what happened. But their response is, Jesus has to go. Get out. He's rejected. He's despised. Move further on into ministry. One of his closest ministry partners. This is probably the most famous, not only just Bible story of betrayal, but just story of betrayal in general. Whether you read Greek mythology or whatever you're reading, Judas is the character of betrayal. While he was still speaking, this is very close to the end of Jesus' life, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? He gets kissed on the cheek, whoever, by the man betraying him. Judas Fast forward. What about his other boys, the 11? He had three really tight friends. Probably his best friends on earth. Peter's one of them. Peter says, all these other folks are going to reject you, despise you. I got you, though. Jesus says, you're going to do this three times. And he does it a third time. And just picture this moment. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. I mean, I rejection in my life, like I have like an old girlfriend, my parents divorce really did some damage. But I can't like in my life come up with a scenario where someone has rejected me with such a acute pain, a shot to my heart, and there's been an eye contact moment where I get to see the person inflicting the pain on me. And that's what we're seeing with our Lord And our king, Jesus, the man who's inflicting the pain of denying him when he said, I would never deny you. Jesus' lowest moment, Peter, I'll be there for you, Lord. He rejects him and Jesus makes eye contact. I think it's written that way because that's how it happened. But also just to remind ourselves of Jesus, God is also Jesus' man. And he experienced all the pain to a much higher degree, higher temperature, higher volume than any of us have ever experienced in terms of pain in the frustration of living in a world where people let us down. His boy looked at him as he rejected him. Eye contact. Like I just, what else do we see? He was rejected by the crowds. Fast forward, Pilate's sort of this neutral figure. He's like this, I just want to see the facts. He looks at the facts. He's not all emotionally charged because he's not Jewish and he's not fired up about what the Jews are fired about. He just wants to get this off his plate. And he looks at it, he's like, Jesus it seems fine to me. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has this man done? I found no, in him no guilt deserving death, but I will therefore punish and release him. But the crowds, they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. Next slide. Here's how John would describe Jesus' entire life. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He was rejected. Isaiah would say it this way, he was despised and he was rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Here's what where the title comes, scars before blood. All of this pain comes before there's a single drop of blood shed on the cross. Like as we, you know, each, each week we take communion, we celebrate the death and life and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christians, rightfully so, focus on the cross. But I think we often forget the totality of Jesus' life. This was all part of his emptying himself, loving us to the point of even death. All of these emotional scars from all these moments where he was despised and rejected are part of Jesus' full life and death and resurrection given for us in the gospel. All of this. He had scars before there was ever nails in his hand. And they're emotional scars. Because here's how Greeks viewed stuff. Emotions are bad. Flesh is bad. There's like this spiritual unseen world. That's the goal. So they were very stoic. Don't feel this. Jews were not that way. Emotions are good. They lament. They write all these Psalms. We just read through Old Testament. Use every bit of emotional bandwidth you have as a human. That's how God created you. And Jesus Christ did. And a lot of his emotional bandwidth was used towards grief. In sorrow, in pain, in frustration, he was despised. He was rejected. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid, hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Sorrow is deep distress or sadness, especially the loss of something. Grief. Over losing something is a universal reality that Jesus Christ also entered into. And he entered into it more than we ever give him credit for. All these moments throughout his life, he was acquainted with sorrows, and he was acquainted with grief. This Bible or the dictionary says a deep and poignant distress. He was also a man who people hid their faces from. People were ashamed of him. And he was not esteemed. I mean, this is Undercover Boss. You know, it was a good show. I don't know if it's still going. It's I'm the head of Subway. I'm the head of Lululemon. I'm going to undercover this and go and work amongst the people. Jesus Christ is the creator of all the universe. And he walks among earth. And at no moment does he get the full esteem he deserves during his earthly journey. Why? Why? Because he was a man of sorrow. was acquainted with grief. He was despised and rejected. Like, let's just remember the scars Jesus took before he ever went to a cross. One of my favorite movies, Braveheart, three very sad moments in the life of William Wallace. First, his wife is killed. He rides in the forest, remember? He's like, we're going to meet here. She's not here, and he knows. She's dead, and I'm going to go kill some people. The end of his life, he gets beheaded. Spoiler if you haven't seen it, it's like 30 years old now. <laughs> but he's laying on the. And they, sad. Both very painful moments. But the most painful moment of that whole movie for me to watch, he makes this agreement with Robert de Bruce. Robert Bruce is a politician. William Wallace is just a fighter who's avenging his wife. And he's Scottish and he wants to help the Scottish people. And they make sort of like, okay, we're in this together. And then there's this fight scene. And he's fighting this guy, and the King of England, the bad guy, you know, he's the, I mean, he is a good, bad actor. And William Wallace rips this guy off the horse, and he takes off his, and it's Robert the Bruce. And Mel Gibson, in all of his acting brilliance, like captures what it feels like to be rejected. And he just falls back into himself. And he's a shell of the warrior he just was. Why? Because he was rejected, and he was despised, and he was betrayed. Jesus Christ experienced that, and not on a movie set or in a small potato sort of way, but in a very real, tangible way. He did not skip over any of the human pain we go through. He went through it all. This process, this reality that Isaiah lays out, that he would be despised, rejected. Jesus doesn't skip around this, using his God card to say, I like every part of these prophecies. He's Born of a virgin, sure. Bethlehem, yeah, I can... I can go I can go south. I'll do whatever I need to do, but this I will go around. He goes right through it. My favorite country singer, Eric Church, puts on a great show. He got in the hot water about 10 years ago. He ripped Carrie Underwood. You just don't mess with Carrie Underwood. But he has a very valid point. How did Carrie Underwood get famous? American Idol. How did Eric Church get famous? He did it the real way. He played in bars. And he played in bars. And he played in bars, and he played in bars, and then he got a bigger bar, and then he played it. And he said, Carrie Underwood did not do it the way we do it in the country world. Jesus Christ did not skip past the reality of what it means to be human. He walked this earth, and he was despised, he was rejected, he was not esteemed. He was a man acquainted with grief and full of sorrows. As we celebrate and we put trees in our house and we drink eggnog and we party, we must remember what it means for Jesus to be fully who he said he would be. And this is part of it. He was completely rejected almost at every turn. What does this mean for us? First of all, we just gotta be reminded of the love that he has for us. Like the list of people you would die for in your life is six to 12 and it's close family, grandma, aunt, uncle, maybe your neighbor, Maybe an in-law. We can just, I mean we can mind be like, oh I'll die for all of you. You know you wouldn't. Like even this church, i am be like, I yeah, there's some people I, I now just Aubrey. Jesus. Jesus did this for us. For us. We didn't present anything to him. There was no like nobility about our birth or like our life or our title that he was like, yep, I'm gonna do it. He just did it out of love. Why did God send a son? Because he loved the world to give a son. But the other thing I want to spend some time on is, this also reminds us of the type of kingdom we will be entering if we choose to follow Jesus. You can say out and be like, I don't want this sort of king to be my pace setter. But if you've stepped in, Jesus has received you. Your faith is in Christ. This is the type of kingdom we now live in. This is the second form of rejection we must experience is we will be rejected what does this mean for us and here's the thing it's sort of like marriage I was at dinner like a month ago with some good friends and the guy asked us a good question me and Aubrey why do you guys have like you guys have a very sweet marriage what is it and we wanted to like sit there and like go back on all the notes we took as single people and take credit for well we did a lot of homework and we really figured out the combination of good. that's not what happened she was singing on a stage, and I said, she is very good looking. <laughs> and she said, I like his hair. And we got together. And God's favor has poured out. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody, even all you young single, you think you're like, I'm going to do the homework that all these other ones did. We all just kind of, it's a little bit of a dice roll. <laughs> and you come together, you're like... Christianity is a little bit like that. None of us really do the homework to think through all the aspects of what it means to follow Jesus. For me, I was 18. My girlfriend had broken with me. I was sad, and I knew there was this brokenness in my life, and somebody presented me with the gospel, and I said, I want that. There was no reference to, and also, by the way, you're signing up for a kingdom where your king was rejected almost at every relational, societal turn in his life. I did not pay attention to that. Most of us don't. In America, in a free country where we get to accept or reject Jesus based off whatever our intellect thinks, like we don't, other countries where there's persecution, there's a very real sense of, do I want to say yes to Jesus and say yes to the persecution? We don't have that. Most of us have said yes to Jesus because we liked him, because of what he offered us, forgiveness, relationship, eternity. But now we're here. What does it mean for us? What is it going to be like to be a follower of Jesus? And there's a couple ways to read the New Testament. It kind of depends. Are you naturally optimistic, pessimistic? And I had this displayed for me big time in a very similar setting. So two people I'm learning from on how to read the Bible as a story. So I go to a weekend. It's called like Gospel Encounter Impact Something. And it's a guy walking through the Bible as a story so that we see the story arc of the Bible. That it's not just religious principles. It's actually a story. And he gets the New Testament, and then he starts interjecting stuff from the epistles, the letters written to churches, and it's all about, and they had unity. And they sold all their possessions. And they had everything in common. And they broke bread together. And they loved each other. And they really loved each other. And then Jesus came back. And I remember thinking, like, there's a lot he skipped over. Like, Corinthians, there was a guy sleeping with his mother-in-law or something. And there's this, all this fighting and these two ladies fighting the letter that Paul calls out publicly in the Bible, which is the most famous book of all. Like there seems to be stuff you skipped over. And then I read this other book. It's a good coffee table book called History of Redemption. It comes out of Austin, Texas. A guy preached a sermon on it, but he basically took scripture, only scripture and walked through the story of the Bible. Same thing. God created, we rebelled, Adam and Eve. Abraham, David, all these, and he gets the point of Jesus, and Jesus redeems all things, and now the Spirit is upon us, and now we get to do life as Christians. And his verses he chose were very different. And I come to find out the man who created this history of redemption preacher for the first time as a pastor went off to serve as a missionary and he was murdered by the tribe he was trying to wow. impact, which is a poetic, beautiful reminder from the Lord that I think he was more right than I realized. And here's some of the verses he uses in his sermon, his book. Here's the first one. 1 John 3, 13. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. That's fun. I did not know that when I was 18, saying yes to Jesus. Nor did most of you. Matthew 10 says this. And you will be hated, and I'll read it from the beginning, Brother will, this is Jesus describing life in the kingdom. Brother will be delivered, brother over to death, and the father, his child, and ch- children will rise against parents and have them put to death, describing his follower's life once he leaves. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But you will be hated, even within your family relations. The kids you birthed, the parents you loved for so long, your Next one. This is all in this book. This is Jesus' most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Blessed are the, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So they're even gonna lie about us? Yes. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's Jesus describing life as a follower of Christ." And then finally, here's a good summary statement. 2 Timothy 3, 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I had a very sort of intense moment where I was feeling attacked and just like moments where you're like, is this pastoring thing worth it? And I reached out to some mentor guys, older pastors, and one the guys totally frustrated me, but he's spot on. Like I want him to say like, all right, let's, Let's go kick some butt together. Or this is just a weird exception. This doesn't really happen. This is, just forget it. He said, this seems like a Second Timothy 3 reminder. Like, that's not why I reach out to you. <laughs> His point was, you wanted to live a godly life. This is what the Bible says a godly life entails. All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. So Christians in the room, what we need is a reminder that we follow a king who had scars of rejection. We will have similar scars, we have similar scars. We will be despised and rejected and hated and persecuted. Just to give you some environments where this is gonna happen, we will be rejected in our own homes. Maybe even by your own spouse. And the New Testament says, if they want to stay with you, stay with them. Jesus is telling you to stay in that environment of rejection. Your kids, your wayward, you'll be rejected in your own family. Like, Because I think about holidays and all the interactions, a lot of the mental energy, all of us, like the bandwidth we're thinking through is how much Aunt Susie is going to require of me when I go and how much Uncle Kevin is going to require of me. And a lot of it has to do with this. Like, I'm the Christian that's off according to them. Jesus says you will be rejected in your work life. I think of all the people, like, as a pastor, I'm here to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And one of my hardest areas of equipping is just hearing how hard it is to be a faithful Christian in certain work environments. And all I can offer is a verse to say, yeah, that's what Jesus said, and I'll pray for you. I wish I could fix it, but I can't. Jesus says that's how it is. In your neighborhoods. I've told you this. We moved here to start a church. All my neighbors, as I talk about Jesus and bring it up, it is a no-fly zone. <laughs> and the more I like face rejection, I just kind of say, well, I'm done. And that's not what God's called me to. Online life, whatever, wherever you go as a Christian, you will be persecuted. You will be rejected. You will be despised. There's a few ways to navigate this, and I did this for Miss Christine Steinbreger. She loves the assimilation. So here's your F's, four F's. So how are you gonna posture yourself? How do you currently posture yourself by default when you face rejection as a Christian for being a Christian? Not for being a jerk, but being being a Christian. The first one is you fake it. Like this is me figuring out when to tell people I'm a pastor, because it kinda just crashes the plane right away, or it gets awkward or I get a weird Christian on the other end, all of which I don't want. <laughs> oh yeah, are you into, Are you a church that's really into? <laughs> you fake it. This is the middle school question my kids are asking. How worth it is it to present myself as a Christian? Yeah. Yeah. It's a middle school question that sticks with you your whole life. How worth it? And I'll say it's not worth it, so I'm just gonna kind of blend in The other idea is to flee from it, run from it. Just sort of cushion yourself in environments where you don't have to face a world that might persecute you, uh, reject you, despise you, not esteem you, so you hide. This is a default of mine, too. Part of it's good. It's like most of the people I really enjoy in life, like just have a deep heart connection, soul connection, are mature Christians. So it's like the people I want to be around that are life-giving to me are Christians. Why would I go and do all, put myself in these awkward moments where I got to deal with people? And that does not mean if you're not a Christian, you're not mature. I'm just saying for me and some of you experience this, it, like you deal with someone who has the fruit of the Spirit, humble, gentleness, peacefulness, all this stuff, you're like, this, this is life giving And then I go to people and I'm like, ah, I just want to run from this. That's not an option. Or we fight it. I think this is the 2016 and on ramped up answer to how to navigate anything. There's a disagreement. Here's what you do. You kill them. You take out your sword, whatever that means, and you take them down. And Jesus says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. So as you think about a world to navigate with politics and all the hot button topic issues, the world has presented a battle plan, and it's kill each other. But we follow a king who took on the rejection for the sake of a bigger cause, namely the kingdom of God coming here to earth which would not happen without him submitting himself to all this painful rejection and being despised. So those are your options. Or, here's the Christian answer that if you're a Christian, you faithfully want to do, but it's really hard, is just be faithful through it. The New Testament, the book of Acts, describes us, the church, as the witnesses in this world. We're here to be faithful witnesses we're not going to change people the holy spirit does it we're not going to fix culture the holy spirit and god's providence does that we're going to be faithful second or first thessalonians says live a quiet and dignified life do what you can do be faithful through whatever god and that only happens by an awareness and a prayerful sort of humility to say we're going into this family situation they know where i stand we've had the talk god help me to be faithful whether it's lovingly bring something up, humbly not saying a word, each situation, each person, each environment in this room, God by this spirit is going to give us unique answers to fit what we need, to be faithful through it. Those are our postures. But here's what we got to remember. We will have scars if we follow him. We'll have scars of rejection. Jesus did. He says this, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. Jesus had scars. We will have scars. He was rejected, we will be rejected. But finally, here's the, here's the gospel truth that we need to remember as Christians in this room. We will face rejection, but this is gonna sound like a contradiction. We will never ultimately be rejected. Ever. Ever. Like, why would anyone choose that life where Jesus says, hey, come follow me. This is what's going to be like. Isaiah 53, despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, a woman acquainted with grief. Why would anyone choose that? Because there is something better in the gospel, and that's that we will ultimately never, ever be rejected by him who matters. Like, our, one of our biggest fears. I was doing all this work on sort of psychological articles, and where does fear of rejection rank? And almost across the board, it's always like a top five answer. You talk to humans, what's their fear? You got death, all the, but fear of rejection is high and it's universal across cultures, ethnicities, language barriers, gender. We fear rejection. Like just some ways I hear this as a pastor. This is a word, a phrase I didn't hear until so, so I, I started pastoring here and I was around more like 25-ish year olds and they'd bring up this imposter syndrome. I have imposter syndrome. I'd never heard it before. And some of you are like, oh, have you never heard of that? I just never heard it. And the other person, I feel like I had imposter syndrome. I feel like an imposter. Imposter. I'm like, what is imposter syndrome? It's like you're in this environment. You're in a workplace. You're in an athletic place. You're someplace where internally you don't think you have what it takes to measure up to whatever it is. And you feel like you're going to be exposed as an imposter in some way, shape, or form. That is fear of rejection. And it's not a trivial form. That's you, those of you that have told me that word, that's a real fear. You can't just like, no, the answer is don't think about it. It's there. Or you got bigger fears. Like I was, I'm adopted. And I talk to people about adoption all the time just because I'm curious and I have a, I've never met my birth father nor do I have a desire. And I was talking to an adoption counselor when I was living in Texas. And she said, usually when I deal with boys, they don't often go back, rarely ever, to go find their biological parents, especially their mom. I'm like, oh, why is that? She's like, I don't know fully. But I think it has something to do with rejection happening once. Why would I re enter into the possibility of being rejected again? Yeah. Here's the reality we all fear rejection. And Jesus is, invites you in to faith and kingdom work with him. And he says, and what you're going to experience is, Rejection. However, here's what the gospel says. We will never be rejected vertically as often as rejected horizontally. Jesus Christ took our rejection for us. Amen? Amen. Tim Keller says this, and he tries to illustrate this reality. He says, assume after a service, some Sunday morning, one of the members of my church comes to me and says, I never want to see you or talk to you again. It's going to hurt. Or it's like answer to prayer. One of those. <laughs> He says, I'll feel pretty bad. However, if my wife comes up to me and says, I never want to see you and talk to you again, that's obviously a lot worse. He goes on to say, why? Because the longer the love, the deeper the love, the greater the torment of its loss. And now he goes on to describe the rejection that Jesus received vertically, that he saved us from on the cross. He says this, but this forsakenness, the lost, Jesus on the cross was between father and son who loved each other from all eternity. You understand he's setting up, he's like, this is far better than the best marriage in this church. They've loved each other from begin, where there was no beginning and there will be no end. They've loved each other intimately and that's where the rejection happened. Jesus, the maker of the world was being unmade. Why? Because he was experiencing judgment day and he cries out to his father who he's loved Forever. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you rejected me? Tim Keller says this is not a rhetorical question. The answer is simply for you and for me and for us. Why have you rejected me? Why have you despised me? Why have you forsaken me? For you, for me, for us. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. The judgment, the rejection has fallen on him instead of us. We do not need to fear rejection because our Savior saved us by his own rejection. That is the gospel message. None of us have earned, deserve any sort of relationship with a holy, perfect God. Except Jesus stepped in the way. And that rejection we should have received was placed on him. He had the scars emotionally from the life that led him up to the cross. And then he goes to the cross to finish the deal to say the rejection. Why have you forsaken me? It's because these cannot take this rejection. I'll take it for them. That's the gospel. Why would any of us step into work, into homes, into uh, family environments where we know we're going to be rejected? Because we have received love from him who was rejected for us. That's it. Isaiah goes on to finish this little passage this way. Here's what Isaiah says in the next two verses, describing this rejected king. Surely he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. We have been reconciled and we will never be rejected by him again. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we want to be faithful. None of us signed up for this for the hard stuff. We signed up for the benefits and the rewards and the eternity and the forgiveness and all the good things that are true in the gospel. Yet with that, you have graciously reminded us that there is more to the story and there is a longer journey for each of us to walk. So God, I just pray for faithfulness. I pray for very specific moments and times when the men and women, the young men, the young women in this room face situations where they experience the same rejection that you faced, And in that moment, we would worship. And in that moment, we would humbly submit ourselves to you and press forward in faith to be faithful witnesses wherever you call us, God, this is not a natural thing. There's not a human heart, a human mind who signs up for this. This is a supernatural gift of the Spirit for us to be able to do this and walk this. So give us your Spirit and the courage that your Spirit brings. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.